how are we justified? Well, it's through faith. Does it sound like faith is a big deal? Okay. We better get this right. Now, guys, this past year, I've been especially reminded of this. I've had a couple of friends that, that left this earth way too soon. My brother-in-law, Barry, was one. He was out running. He's probably in our family, the, the in shape, better, not just a shape, but actually in shape, better than any of us. He's out running, training for a marathon. He has uh, some kind of heart issue and dies on the side of the road. Completely unexpected. Had another guy this past week, a preacher that I'm acquainted with, wife, kids. He's given a cancer diagnosis. They tell him at first he's got six months to live. They call him the next day and say, no, it's, it's, it's more like weeks you have to live. He died that day. He's gone. Guys, we're all headed that direction one way or the other. What I want to suggest to you is if faith, if this is what the Bible says about faith, we better get this faith thing right. And if you go ask people to define faith, you know what you're going to hear? You're going to hear a lot of different answers on even what it is, much less how it plays out in life. But it's massively important. And, and what I would like to suggest is that, for the most part, the concept of faith and even the definition of faith is, is misunderstood or incomplete. And in the grand scheme of Christianity, you know, you've got about... Uh, Around two and a half billion Christians in the world, roughly. About half of those are Catholics. Uh, out of the other half, you've got uh, close to a billion Protestants. Uh, that's about 100 million Baptists, 100 million Lutherans, 100 million Calvinists or Reformed, 70 million Methodists, another 280 million or so Pentecostal Charismatic. And within these different groups, you have different understandings of what faith is. But I, if I had to boil it down between all the major denominations that are out there, the, the standard understanding and definition of what faith is, is faith is belief and trust in Jesus. How many of you guys have heard that articulated before? If you just had to nail down a definition of faith, it means you believe in and trust in Jesus. So if you go to any of these churches uh, that have that kind of understanding, or if you encounter any of these campus ministries and study the Bible with someone, if they're doing evangelism, they're going to explain that this is what faith is. It's belief and trust in Jesus. That is an incomplete definition of what faith is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that in this lesson. What, let's start, though, with what is, what is not, what, what faith is not. Let's just start there, okay? Faith is not the opposite of evidence assessment or a leap in the dark. A lot of people read Hebrews 11 verse 1 where it says uh, faith is confidence of what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And I even did a little Facebook experiment this past week. I asked on my wall, what is faith? And got a lot of different answers. A lot of them kind of made this allusion to it being, you know, just believing stuff without evidence almost, or just kind of jumping off and, and hoping everything is going to be okay and understanding it is. That's not really what it is. And the point even of that Hebrews passage is faith is something that prompts disciples to act in a visible world based on God's invisible realities, but it's not without evidence. There's all kinds of evidence for why we should trust God. You think about Noah. You think about Abraham. They were called to do things that were crazy, but they had had experiences with God up to that point in their life that made them think this would be smart. You know, it'd be smart to build this boat because God has shown me this, this, and this. It would be smart to go off to this far off land because God has shown me this. It wasn't without evidence. Okay, it was reasonable in that sense. Also, faith is not the opposite of works. There's this false divide between faith and works in contemporary theology. It even shows up a little bit in that video. I'm pretty sure the author of that video uh, would understand some things differently than, than we would as far as what works are and what 
uh, characterizes those. Just a real simple answer, guys. Every time the Bible mentions works in the New Testament, it is not talking about works of righteousness in general. It is specifically talking about works of the Mosaic Law. And in every single one of those letters that is written that where Paul talks about works, and some of you guys don't even know what I'm talking about, but for those of you that do, um, Romans, Ephesians, uh, Galatians, those, were, those letters were written to churches that were divided between Jews who were saying you had to follow the old Mosaic law and Gentiles who are non-Jews, who are Christians, who were saying, no, we want to follow Jesus. We're not worried about those 600 and something uh, laws. And so there was this divide in the church. And so what Paul is saying in these letters is you don't have to follow that old law, those old works of the law to be saved. You need to follow Jesus. And so that's a lot different. And um, anyway, you guys can ask me about that. There's some church history uh, where a guy named Martin Luther misunderstood that. And he thought works meant any works of righteousness. And so a lot of the modern day denominations and John Calvin and Hildreth Zwingli some of these guys that were back in the 1600s, okay, they misunderstood that stuff. And now, modern day, there are all these churches that misunderstand it as well. And those are some of the biggest and most powerful denominations. You can ask me about that later if you want to. But if you want to make a note of 2 Corinthians 5.10, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that say things like this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. Does that sound like what you do in the body matters? Okay, and there's a bunch of passages that simply say what you do, you're going to be judged for. Okay, so don't think that that doesn't matter, and we may talk more about that in a moment. We're, uh, faith is not an it's all good attitude. Okay, a lot of people think that's what faith is. is it's it's going to work out. It's going to be great. I got faith. Everything going to be fine. That's not what faith is. Okay. Faith is also not simply intellectual assent. And this is a, a common misunderstanding where faith is solely reduced to believing that certain doctrines are true. And if I believe that certain doctrines are true, God is going to zap me with the Holy Spirit and I'm going to be justified. I was driving through Florida when I was in the campus ministry with the CIA down in Tampa. This was years ago. A uh, long time. And uh, I remember driving my car when I was an intern in the campus ministry, listening to some religious radio station. And this guy was actually saying on the radio, if you will just have faith, and that means if you will just believe, even if you believe just for one second, God will justify you. He'll forgive all your sins, even if you just believe for one second that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And then you don't even have to believe the rest of your life. It doesn't even matter what you do. God's going to save you, and what's saved, always saved. And I remember driving in the car, just like, man, that's crazy. And he quoted some scripture to back up what he was saying, but man, he was quoting it all, all out of context. It wasn't right. But guys, there's people that believe that. There's, there's students that are on campus that you're going to encounter and study the Bible with that have had that religious experience from somebody that supposedly was supposed to know what they were talking about, and they're going through life thinking they're right with God when they're not. We got to be there to help them, right? So why all this misunderstanding? There are two major problems when properly understanding faith, and I'm going to point out what those are to you. First of all, the first major problem in understanding faith is we've misunderstood what the gospel is. We have misunderstood what the good news of Jesus is. The common understanding of the gospel is, you know, if you ask people what the gospel is, it's, it's how our sins are forgiven through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. I have, I have believed this, uh, that that's, that's, that's it, that's the gospel. That is part of the gospel. That's not the complete gospel. Uh, if you understand the gospel simply in terms of, of how it helps you get your sins forgiven, that is a self-centered understanding of the gospel. I have a sin problem that I need taken care of. Jesus died for my sins, so now I can have my problem fixed. That's a self-centered understanding. 
And all that's required is my personal belief that Jesus died for my sins. And this assumes that the ultimate goal for humanity is to have this blissful life in heaven in some far off future. What I want to do is walk you through what the Bible says. Okay, so look at, look at Romans 1, 1 through 5. And we'll have these up here on the screen. So if you just want to make a note of it, and I'll make this PowerPoint available to you as well. Uh, but I'll just read through these. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the what? Gospel of God. And now he's going to get into what that gospel is. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Okay, there's the gospel. Guys, where's the part about me and my quest for salvation? Where is it? You see it? Okay. Uh, what is presented here is this grand cosmic story about who Jesus is and how he came into the world. And then verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord. Guys, that is Jesus the King and our Master. Jesus, the king and our master. That's where the gospel finds its climax. Look at Philippians 2, 6-11. This is another explanation of the gospel. This is actually part of a song that they would sing in the first century church. These are lyrics to a song. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, again, guys, where's... Where is my personal forgiveness of sin here? Where is it? It's not there. Okay? Look at uh, one more, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. This says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. There we go. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to me also, as to one abnormally born. So there you've got Jesus' death, you've got his burial, you've got the forgiveness of sins, you've got the resurrection and appearances. Skip down to verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. Okay, notice this is what we have preached. He's talking about himself and all the apostles. This was the common presentation. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I've had pneumonia. The common presentation, the common uh, understanding of the gospel, this is what was taught then. And keep reading, you get to the resurrection in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, and the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him... <coughs> The end, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father 
after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Okay? That's how the Bible presents the gospel. That's how the apostles present the gospel. Is what they're saying different than what we would understand commonly to be the gospel? Thank you, sir. You are so kind. So kind. You guys, give Landon a hand. Thank you, sir. Please don't tell him I already had a cup of water up here, though. <laughs> It is a hint, that's right. Um, thank you. By the way, did you guys know you can Google Landon Shuffet, S-H-U-F-F-E-T, and see some really cute videos of Landon when he was a kid? Oh, it's two Ts? I bet you Google would autocorrect, because you're famous. I'm just saying. He's actually one of the best pool players in the world. So He's, he's pretty good, that's right. He's pretty good. Um, so yeah, the common misunderstanding that's out there is the gospel is simply a story about heaven, hell, making a decision, raising your hand after praying a certain prayer, justification by faith alone, trusting that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient, uh, or any human tendencies towards self-salvation through good works is, is something you should avoid, right? There's some truth to that, but a better biblical definition of the gospel very simply, is the gospel is the story of how Jesus became king of the universe. The gospel is the story of how Jesus became king of the universe, how he was enthroned as king of the universe. It is a grand tale that includes the entire Bible. Starts in the beginning, goes through this whole ordeal with these people in Israel and God working through them, choosing this lowly nation, making them his people and then working throughout the centuries as they screwed things up to still use him to bring the Savior of the world in. And he died on a cross for our sins. He was buried according to what was predicted in the scriptures. He rose from the dead according to what was predicted in the, in the scriptures. He came back and appeared to many. He taught them about what was to come. And then he ascended into heaven and was enthroned as king and lord and master over everything. He is literally sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now with all of the power in his hand. And guys, he's coming back someday. And when he comes back, he's not going to come back humbly. He came in humility. He's going to come back in glory. He came as a baby and swung a hammer for a living. He's coming back as a knight on a horse tatted up with Lord of Lords and King of Kings up his thigh, and he ain't swinging a hammer, he's swinging a sword. And we better be ready. And that is a much better encapsulation of the gospel than Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you need to believe it so you can go to heaven. Our response to the gospel is not, I need to raise my hand and say some magic words and get saved. Our response to the gospel is we have a king who is in heaven who is coming back to make everything right and my job between now and then is to join him in the work right now. It ain't to wait on him to come back. It's to begin being kingdom people right now, living loyally to our king right now and that's going to change this world beginning right now. And when he comes back, he's going to make everything ultimately right but we've got a job right now as his people to start moving things that direction. And we're going to face enemies, and we're going to face hardship, and we're going to face all kinds of stuff getting thrown at us. But guess what? We ain't got to worry, because the worst thing they can do is kill us. And he defeats death. We ain't got nothing to worry about. Because that's the gospel. And so if you want to outline this gospel, we got a slide for you to make this easy, okay? Jesus the King... And by the way, guys, I didn't walk you through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This all shows up there, too, in different bits and pieces. The gospel is not different for Jesus and Paul. You will run across some traditions 
that misunderstand what faith is, that will try to tell you, especially now we've got a liberal move going, and by liberal I mean people who are walking away from faith in scholarly and academic circles and denominations that are getting away from what biblical faith is and they're actually leading people into sin. You've got people that are, um, that are walking away. Here is the gospel. Jesus pre-existed. Jesus the king pre-existed. Jesus became a man. And that's fulfilling God's promise to David. God promised King David one day he was going to put a special king descended from him on the throne that was going to be unlike any other king. He was, he was going to be a king that had a throne that endured forever. That, that sets up the story of the Bible. And then when Jesus comes, the Jews in the first century knew that story, but they thought he was going to be an earthly king. And so if you read the Gospels, you see all these problems that cause, where they're, they're thinking he's going to have an army, and they're thinking all this stuff. Guys, Jesus' enemy was not the Romans. Jesus' Jesus's enemy was sin and death. And so the reason his kingdom is greater than any other kingdom is because he's not fighting an earthly enemy. He's fighting the very enemies of humanity. So if you want to be on the winning side of humanity, you want to be on Team Jesus, right? He became a man, fulfilling God's promise to David, uh, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to many. The climax, guys, is not the cross. Did you guys notice in that video? There's not a single mention besides them calling Jesus Christ. There's really not a single mention of his enthronement. There's not a single mention of him going into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God with all the power of God in his hand now. Guys, that's the good news. The good news is not limited to you get your sins forgiven. That's great. Hallelujah. We have no hope without that. That's really, really important. I'm not trying to downgrade that. But guys, that's only part of the good news. The really great climax in this story is he is in charge. And you have nothing to worry about when Jesus is king. That was missing from that presentation. It's missing from most presentations of the gospel. But guys, it is indeed the gospel. In the first century, this is what was the great news for these people. You might notice in some of those presentations, they didn't even talk about the forgiveness of sins. They talked about Jesus being in charge and being Lord. That was what hinged things for them. So he's seated at the right hand of God as Lord. He was made king, and he will come again as judge. If you're a visual learner, I've got a graphic for you. This comes, uh, you guys have seen this. This is the White's Ferry Road Church logo. I love this. Uh, this was uh, written on a little slip of paper by a guy associated with their congregation years ago. I forget his name. Um, but this is, uh, you can Google this, White's Ferry Road logo. This is a really good little visual illustration of the gospel. You've got the first arrow where it's pointing down. What does that mean? Jesus came down as a man, right? And then you've got the cross. And so before that arrow, you've got Jesus pre-existing in heaven with God. He comes down. He wasn't created. He's actually God. He made himself a man, came into the world. He dies on a cross for our sins. He's buried in a tomb for three days, according to the scriptures. He rises up from the dead, according to the scriptures. He appears to many. He tells them about the kingdom of God. He gives them some instructions. He gives them the mission to go out and make disciples. And then he ascends back into heaven and is enthroned as the cosmic king of the universe who is going to come back someday. And that's that last arrow. Guys, what is the only thing left in this grand story of us and him? There's only one arrow left. We are... We're on, the, we're on the latter end of the story, guys. We're at the end of Act 2 going into Act 3. We better get ready. And so when you understand that the gospel is primarily the good news about King Jesus, this story about how God worked throughout history to redeem the entire world through his Son, us and creation... The good news is that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is king. Jesus is going to make everything right. And yeah, you can have your sins forgiven. That's the only way to participate in this grand cosmic story. But guys, 
That's the good news, is that we get to participate in what Jesus is doing and what he's going to do. Amen. That's the good news. So the first problem with understanding faith, guys, is that is not the normal understanding of the gospel. But if you go look in your, look in your Bible and see how the gospel is presented, this is the gospel. Okay? If we understand the gospel properly, we're going to have a better idea of what faith is in a proper sense. Okay? But the second major problem with understanding faith is, number two, we've misunderstood the way the word faith was used in the first century. We have misunderstood the way the word faith was used in the first century. You guys, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word that we commonly translate faith or belief is pistis. And that's the root for uh, different forms, the adjective form, the, the verb form. Uh, in the noun form, it's, it's pistis. This is what is commonly translated believe or faith. Now, the way scholars determine the best rendering of a word into English from the original language is we go and we look at different uses of that word in, in other parts of the Bible first, and then we will look at non-biblical literature secondary, and we will look at how the word was used 500 years before, how it was used 300 years before, 200, all the way down to the current, whatever we're looking at, and then into the future, and we get as best we can tell, a definition and a way to render that word from the original language into English or whatever language we're working with. Uh, straight up, Bible translators have not done this word justice when it comes to our modern translations. The reason that most people would define faith simply as belief or trust is because in our modern-day translations, which are great, by the way, sometimes we need to go back and look at things. This is one of those instances. But the reason most people would define faith simply as belief and trust is because that's the way it is rendered in most modern translations. The truth is, this word has a much wider range of meaning than simply belief and trust. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. The first one comes out of uh, 1 Maccabees, which is not a Bible book. This is uh, from something called the Apocrypha, uh, which is non-canonical, which means we don't think this is really from God. Uh, this was written um, about 150 years before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, around, around 150 B.C. Uh, this is a letter from King Demetrius. Uh, he's concerned, just to give you some context, that his rival Alexander may have beaten him to the punch in forging an alliance with the Jewish people. And so King Demetrius, in seeking to persuade the Jews to his cause, writes this. King Demetrius, to the nation of the Jews, greeting. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. Now, continue to still keep what? Keep faith with us, and we will repay you with good for what you do for us. Does that mean keep believing we exist? No. Does it mean uh, keep, you know, it, it means something more than that, right? Keep trusting that we're over here? Okay. There is a trust component to it, but here Demetrius is asking these Jews to, to continue showing pistis, to continue showing faith, but, but a proper understanding here is, is to show loyalty. It's to show allegiance. It's to be faithful to. It's not just to believe that they're there or trust that what they say. It, it's to actually be loyal to them. And just a few lines later, Demetrius is going to further promise that some Jews will be put in positions demanding loyalty as administrative leaders in government. One more example. Guys, there are a bunch of these. I'm not going to bore you. I, I just want you to get an idea that this is out there. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus uses this word to apply to loyalty or allegiance so much that it's, it's redundant to give you so many definitions. I'll just give you one, okay? Here's a word from Josephus said to a rebel leader who was plotting to kill him that he was trying to convince to come over to his side instead. 
He said, repent and believe in me. That's actually a quote from Josephus. And he uses this, this phrase a lot. Guys, does that sound familiar? Okay. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1.15. Josephus was a first century writer. He actually wrote those words in AD 66. But Josephus wasn't trying to convince this rebel when he said, repent and believe in me. He wasn't trying to convince this rebel to turn away from the private sins in his life and believe that God could forgive him. He was trying to convince this rebel to join him in supporting the cause that Josephus was fighting for. He was trying to convince this rebel to be loyal to him. For Josephus, repent and believe in me meant turn away from your present course of action and become loyal to me. Now, is that a little different way of understanding faith? Okay. When it comes to passages regarding eternal salvation, and this is important, guys, if you want to understand the faith of our fathers, when it comes to passages regarding eternal salvation, pistis, that is faith or belief, should be translated to show allegiance to or to be faithful to in your Bible. And guys, this is not me saying that. Now, I do say this, and I, I have believed this for a number of years, but now, in the scholarly academic world, there are some real heavyweight, world-leading scholars that are saying this now. N.T. Wright, Michael Gorman, Richard Hayes, um, Matthew Bates, who wrote a really good book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Uh, these guys are, are they're experts. And they are now translating, when they do their translations of the scriptures, they are translating this word appropriately. I first heard this from a guy named Ed Myers at Harding University years ago. And so I've always uh, kind of known this, but now I'm happy to see that it's picking up steam in the academic world. I assumed one of these days we're going to have some Bible translations that come out in English that actually get this word right. Matthew Bates uh, says, the adoption of allegiance language is pressing for the church for faith and belief blot out vitally important dimensions of meaning in the pistis word family that need to be recovered. And so just kind of a summary, guys. Allegiance is the faith of our fathers. Allegiance is the faith of our fathers. When they talk about having faith, they understood that word in the first century to be more aligned with faithfulness and allegiance, which is action, guys. It's obedience. More than just mental assent or trust. That is a better understanding of this. So look, look at this. Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Right? Retranslate. Re-render this word correctly. For it is by grace you have been saved through... Pop it up there. For by grace you have been saved through allegiance. Look at Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Let's, let's re-render that word. Therefore, since we have been justified through allegiance... We have peace with God through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by allegiance into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Guys, is that different? Okay. Try this, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who is faithful. Or who is allegiant. And again, guys, I've done some work with Greek. I've dabbled. Um, I took, took several years of Greek. But I'm not a world-leading scholar. The guys that are saying this is right are big shots. So don't just come here and say, well, some guy said, no, no. 
These are big shots that are saying this is right. Okay? Now, I don't suggest you go and start breaking out your pen and crossing out all the faith. There, there are some places in the Bible, whenever you're doing Greek, the way you translate a word, and Adam can attest to this, uh, Clint Hill can attest to this, a lot of us have taken uh, a lot of Greek. But when you, when you render a word from the original language into English, the context of that passage, that determines how you render that word. And so there are a lot of places in the Bible where faith or belief, which is the same word, by the way, uh, faith or belief, same Greek word. Um, there are a lot of places where those should be rendered faith or belief or trust. That's proper. But just about any time it's talking about eternal salvation as it relates to faith, a better rendering of that word is going to be allegiance or faithfulness. Nearly across the board. And that is a much, much different understanding of what faith is. But guys, that is the faith of our fathers. That is what they understood when they were talking about faith. When they were talking about pistis to people on the street, that's what they would have understood. They didn't have all this hundreds of years of, of misunderstanding informing what they believed. Guys, did you understand? You know in our country... We have so many people walking around who think they're right with Jesus that aren't. Because they have had well-meaning people come. Guys, I'm not even judging motives. There are very well-meaning people that have been taught wrongly that are going and teaching what they believe is true to, to people that don't know any better. And they think they're having this encounter with Jesus and they're going through life thinking they're going to die and be right with God. Guys, and what they're, they're not. Because they're not living faithfully. They're not living obediently. They're not living like Jesus is their king. They're living like Jesus is their savior because they said some magic words or they had some experience and now, now they're saved. But guys, he's not their Lord. Because they haven't even really been taught that that's that important. But that is a completely different understanding of faith than the faith of our fathers. Because fundamentally, they understood the gospel means Jesus is king. And my response to that is, am I going to be allegiant to him as my sovereign king or not? It wasn't just, do I want to get my sins forgiven? Do you see how important that is? And so in application of this, guys, if I want to adopt the faith of my fathers first, I must believe in Jesus. There is a, a mental assent that is needed. You can't be right with God and you don't even believe he's there. It doesn't work that way, right? So part of faith is mental assent. It is belief. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That is pistis, guys. This is contextually, this is the right translation here. Belief. Okay, that is a part of this. You must believe that he exists. You've got to believe the scriptures. You've got to believe the gospel. You've got to believe Jesus is in charge. And some people say, man, I really struggle with this because I have doubts. And, you know, faith is, is about belief. And, and I struggle and I doubt sometimes. And I don't know if I'm right with God because of my doubts. I know, I know that's a struggle. So, more for some than others. So how do I know if I'm right with God if I doubt? Do I believe, if faith is belief, do I believe strongly enough to be saved? Let me ask it. Do you believe strongly enough to obey? I think that's the litmus test. Do you believe strongly enough? Is your belief strong enough to obey God? Because I think if your belief is strong enough to obey God, even if you still struggle with some doubts, I think God is going to cover you. So just... Use that as the litmus test. Now, if you believe and doubt, or if you doubt strongly enough to walk away and, yeah, I don't really know about that. Yeah, you're probably not all right. Obey. Secondly, I must trust Jesus. I must trust Jesus. Abraham is a really good example of someone who trusted Jesus. He had an angel of the Lord come to him, which some people would say was Jesus in angelic form, and tell him, uh, Actually, I may be getting my facts mixed up there. He had an angel come to him. Um, 
and tell him, you are going to be the father of this great nation. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the sands on the seashore, more, more numerous than the stars in the sky. There was just a problem with that, right? How old was Abraham? He's an old dude. How old was his wife? She's an old lady. She, didn't, she hadn't had any kids. They, they thought she couldn't have kids. And this angel comes and says, no, you're going to have kids, and then he's going to have kids, and then they're going to have kids, and you guys are going to be like rabbits. You're going to be great in rabbits. You're going to be like stars, man. <laughs> talk, about, talk about rabbits exponential, right? But you know what? He trusted that that was true. And he went and told Sarah, hey, God told me this. She laughed. Abraham didn't. And they had a kid later on. God came to him and told him to go sacrifice his son. Abraham thought, but didn't you tell me he was going to be the like, conduit through which all these descendants come? And, and you're you know what? I trust you so much. I'll go sacrifice him, and I know you're just going to raise him from the dead. Because that's, that's how great my trust is. And Abraham is a really good example. Now, he did some dumb stuff, too. But he's a really good, which should give us some hope. But he's a really good example of somebody that trusted God wholeheartedly. And so he didn't have to sacrifice his son. He actually gets him up there and lays him on the altar and raises the knife, and then God sends an angel to stop him. It was just a test. But man, he trusted God. And so in Romans, whenever Paul is retelling the story of Abraham and using his, him in his, as an example of someone who really trusted God, he says that his trust or his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so in uh, Romans 4, verse 23, the words it was credited to him, talking about Abraham, were not written just for Abraham. They weren't written for him alone, but also for us, whom God will credit righteous, righteousness, for us who trust in him. This is a good rendering of that here. Uh, it may say believe in him in your Bible. This is, uh, this is a good example of where trust would work. Uh, for Pistis, for, for us who trust in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Guys, we need to trust God if you have faith. You need to trust that this story, that the gospel is true. You need to trust that Jesus really did come into the world, that he preexisted, came in as a man, lived a perfect life, died a, and rose again. And that your sins are forgiven for him. You need to trust that he ascended to heaven and is king. He's king of everything. You need to trust that. You need to trust that he's going to come back someday and make everything right. And you're going to stand before him, guys. That's an important aspect of faith. Thirdly, if you want to adopt the faith of your fathers, thirdly, I must obey Jesus. I must obey Jesus. I tell my church all the time in Collinsville, whenever you encounter this word faith, remember it really means four things. I just put three down here. We're kind of wrapping uh, two of them into one. But it, it is belief, it is trust, it is loyalty, and it is obedience. It is those four things. If you don't have in mind all four of those aspects of faith, then you are missing the point. You, are, you have an incomplete definition or you just have a wrong definition. But this third one, I must obey Jesus, this means I am loyal to Jesus as king. Because if I really am loyal to Jesus, I'm going to do what he says. Try this on for size. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You guys familiar with this, right? That he gave his one and only son, that whoever is faithful, whoever is loyal, whoever is allegiant to him, shall not perish but have eternal life. That's how the fathers of our faith would have heard this in the first century. They wouldn't have heard, do I just believe that he really did this? No. Why do I know that? Because Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
There are theologies and presentations of the gospel that you will encounter on your campus, that you will encounter in churches that will imply that obedience is somehow optional. You will encounter some that will teach you that if you will just mentally believe that there's a God in heaven and trust in him for your forgiveness, he will actually zap you, and then he'll take the wheel. That song, Jesus, Take the Wheel. He will take the wheel. You will have no say anymore, and he will make you his little robot, and then he'll do life for you. And that's kind of crass. I may be a little angry about that. Sorry if that came out sarcastically. Sarcasm is just a form of anger, Kevin Klein. Uh, my apologies. Guys, it's, it's not true. There, I mean, yeah, the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. He does help us. I don't want to imply at all. But, guys, to say your will is removed is, is, is wrong, and it's dangerous. God created you in his image. He gave you the ability to choose. In his sovereignty, he gives you the ability to choose and make decisions. That is part of his sovereign will for you. And uh, so we need to make good decisions. We cannot see obedience as optional. We cannot see as maturing in Christ as, eh, if, I, if I want to. Guys, that, that's, <laughs> that's not right. If you're a disciple, you're going to seek to move toward Jesus as your king. Why? Because you're loyal to him. Why are you going to do what he says? Because you're allegiant to him. He's in charge, not you. Are you going to screw up? Yeah. Good thing he's graceful. Can you turn your back and walk away and rebel? You bet you can. You better not. You're asking for trouble. But guys, the whole of our Christian life is to, is to live like Jesus is our king and to be loyal and obedient to him. That is the faith of our fathers. So we're going to end here uh, with a little bit of question and answer. Um, how, what time are we supposed to be done? 1130? Huh? Oh, it's at noon? Okay, well, we got about 15 minutes. Um, good, we can get some good questions. Yes. Can somebody grab a mic and can we get these on the recording so I don't have to repeat everything? Check, check. Okay. Thank you for that. That was mind-blowing. My question is two-part. So, one, to explain this to other Christians, as you pointed out, like debunking and uh, kind of this belief, how do we go about doing that? I know you said not to quote you and to go back to all these scholars, and I know that's going to be in the audio and the PowerPoint, but what, is there a website for this that's more comprehensive, or how would I even go about Faith in Greek is actually obedience in certain aspects. Like, I don't even know what resources are available, I guess is my question. I'll tell you what. Go to, uh, can you pull up BibleHub.com on here? Great site. Um, and go to, uh, go to John 3.16. Pick their favorite passage uh, that they want to point to. And uh, what you can do on BibleHub is pretty simple. Uh, you misspelled Bible. You have a U in there. <laughs> BibleHub. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Um, but you can, I, I can't remember if you right-click the word or what, but you can actually pull up a word study that'll, that'll pull up different resources. And I want to say Bible Hub has good resources on it. Some of the websites, um, I guess they didn't buy the license for some of the better stuff that's out there. I think Bible Hub is the one that's got some good ones. Um, if it's not Bible Hub, it's Bible Gateway. It's one of the two major ones. Matt, uh, there you go, 16. And then you can right-click, or there may be another tab. I've got software that I use for all this stuff. That's why I'm not super familiar. Oh, okay. Um, no, no, no. There should be a word study somewhere. Yeah, go to, go to, I don't know. Can you right-click the word? What does it do if you right-click the word? Probably nothing. Right-click the word believes. You know where John 3.16 is? Yeah, that ain't going to do nothing. Uh, lexicon. 
Okay, go down to Believes. Click uh, Pistis over there. Okay. So this will bring up different... Uh, Yeah. So if you read through the, the various definitions in a word study, this, is, this must be a different site. Uh, the one that I was thinking of, or maybe a different section of the site. Poke around and do some, do some stuff online. What you'll find is if you look up the definition of this word in Greek, mm -hmm. one of the common uh, renderings is to commit that shows up, uh -huh. uh, it's never rendered that in our NIV and New American Standard stuff, but sure. if you go, you go poke around with some of the Greek sources, you'll see that. Um, and so that's one thing, if you're just in a, on, on the fly in a Bible study, mm -hmm. I would look ahead of time where that is, uh, but you can sit down and just show people, okay, this isn't me saying it, this is, this is, the, this is it, yeah. okay? My second question mm -hmm. is, like, this is kind of a big deal, and I know as they go back and study the Bible, some things may change. How can we keep on top of those issues? Well, um, I, think, I think study is, is important. Um, there's, something, there's something to be said about looking at the academic side of Scripture for stuff like this. Honestly, most of the academic stuff that's out there is irrelevant, just straight up. Like, it doesn't help boots on the ground. <laughs> uh, but... There's some stuff that's really important. This is one of those. Uh, I've got some scholars that, I, that are some of my favorites. N.T. Wright's up there. You know, I don't agree with the guy on everything, but man, he really does make it a point to try to make his scholarship go from the ivory tower to the street. And uh, he's a guy that I like. I like reading his books. I like looking at his stuff. He's also a, a big shot in terms of uh, respected scholars. There are other guys that I read. Um, the, the last book I read was a guy named Matthew Bates, uh, Salvation by Faith Alone. Uh, I'm part of some communities, uh, Renew.org. Uh, they do a conference every year. A guy named Bobby Harrington, he runs Renew.org, Discipleship.org. He, he puts out some really good resources, and he's, uh, he's on top of this stuff. And so conferences like this uh, in other places, if we encounter something, we're probably going to try to make the information available to you. Um, so come to CMU workshops, uh, read. Um, anybody else? Yeah, no problem. Summer. Um, how do you, obviously we're talking about kind of refuting certain either beliefs or denominations of people who may not be saved, but... Uh, how do you um, handle, like, just leading and, you know, with people that uh, have this mindset? Uh, the mindset that faith is simply belief and trust? Or that, um, you know, maybe just people who are just existing or people who are not, you know, living in obedience to Christ. Obviously, you know, we can't, we can't will anyone to change. That's, yeah. you know, that's God's job. But... What do you think the Bible says about um, about how we handle that within our, you know, within our brotherhood and sisterhood of other Christians? Well, I think we've got to look and see uh, how people respond when we try to handle things with them. And uh, the sermon series we just did at the crossings, I think, gives us some really good insight on how to handle different kinds of lost people. In, in Luke, uh, is it 15? I should know this. I'm the preacher. <laughs> uh, it has the three parables, the parable of the uh, lost uh, sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And the, those three parables are told by Jesus to this group of religious people that were looking down their noses at unsaved uh, sinners. And Jesus' point to them is these people are lost. They need to be found. You religious people who know the word of God are just kind of looking down your noses. Here's really how you should approach them. And the lost sheep is lost due to what? If you're at the crossings. The lost sheep is due, lost due to weakness. Some people are like sheep. They're lost because they're weak. 
that there's no other reason. They're ignorant. They, they, they don't know any better. And so they walked away from the flock. They walked away from God. And what we need to do to reach a lost sheep or someone that's lost due to weakness is we need to, uh, like the shepherd in the story, go alongside them, pick them up, and physically bring them back. They need somebody to come strengthen them. That's the approach we should take to people that are lost due to weakness. Then you've got some people, just like the lost coin was lost due to neglect, you've got some people that are lost due to neglect. They haven't had some need met. They've wandered away and become lost. It may not have even been their fault. It may just be they were neglected by their family, by their church. There's some area of neglect. The way the woman in that parable found that coin was she lit a lamp and she searched all over that house. She paid attention. So how do you reach a person who's lost due to neglect? Well, you pay attention. The third story is the story of the lost son. That boy, the prodigal, wasn't lost because he was weak. He wasn't lost because he was neglected. He was lost because he was a doofus. He was lost because he was rebellious. And you might notice in his rebellion when he goes to his father and says, Hey, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me the money so I can go party. Daddy doesn't chase him after he leaves the house. He lets him go find a pig pen. And a lot of times when we encounter people, when we speak the word of God to them, when we try to love on them, but there's just no response, it's because they're rebellious. And the only thing we can do with a person who's rebellious is let them go find a pig pen. And Jesus even says, in, in the context of Matthew 7, when he's talking about giving good advice, let's look at that real quick. Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus doesn't say, do not judge, and then stops. He says, do not judge unless you're okay with being judged too. And don't apply a standard to somebody that you're not willing to have applied to you. Then he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice there, Jesus doesn't say, don't, don't, just not, don't, don't take any action. What Jesus is saying is if you're going to write a how-to guide for somebody else's life, you better make sure your life is right first. He's not saying, don't disciple somebody else, don't give somebody else advice. He's saying, get right first, then get to a position where you can give somebody else advice. That's what this parable is all about, by the way. This is, this is the, the point Jesus wants people to get to, is to get to a place where they can give guidance to somebody else. But guess what? Sometimes, if you get to the point where you're mature enough to give somebody else some good godly advice, you're going to encounter fools who don't want to listen to you. You know how much hope there is for a fool? Proverbs says zero. You know what has to change in order for a fool to get help? They got to quit being a fool. You know what helps a fool quit being a fool? A pig pen. How many of you have been in a pig pen? I have. Years. I was a drug addict. Didn't listen to anybody. Found a pig pen. Found God. But it took a pig pen because I was a big dummy. You're going to encounter big dummies in life. Jesus says, this is what you do with the big dummy. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You might notice when the apostles are sent out to spread the word of God two by two, they encounter a town that doesn't, doesn't accept them. Man... I don't even want the dust of this town on my feet. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go find somebody that's going to listen. We're out in the world carrying out the mission of God, guys. That's what we got to do. If you're out on campus, guys, there are some people that just don't want what you have. They don't see the value. They're blind to it. Don't keep fooling with them. Get it, go, go find somebody that's going to be open. 
and pray for those that aren't. Because guys, they're going to find a pig pen eventually. By the way, that's, that's God's grace. It doesn't feel like God's grace when you're in the middle of a pig slot. But guys, that's an act of grace to find that pig pen. You pray for them to find a pig pen. We say a lot at the crossings, a lot of times those wounds that we have in life that can introduce infection and sickness, man, that's the same opening for medicine and antibiotics and all kinds of healing. And so we need to be sure that we're there to administer the healing and, and to make, uh, give them somewhere where they can go and get help, right? But we don't want to keep fooling with them if they're rebellious. Does that make sense? Okay. Is that it? Okay. We're going to wrap, guys. Thank you for your attention. Uh, let me pray over us, and then we'll get to our next class. God, I want to thank you uh, for bringing us together this morning. Uh, God, thank you for giving us the gospel. Thank you for this story we get to participate in. Father, I pray that uh, we will have clarity as to what the faith of our fathers is. Because faith is so important, just like those scriptures pointed out, our justification, our being right with you, our being made right hinges on our proper application of faith. God, I pray we remember that faith is allegiance to Jesus as King. We must believe that he's there. We must trust him. But God, God we must obey him too. I pray you give us your spirit of obedience, your spirit of insight, your spirit of love. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.